remain standing for our sermon text, our epistle lesson from Romans 6, the last five verses, starting in verse 19. Give your ear to God's inspired word. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the truth here today about the wages of sin and the gift of eternal life. Help us to know you, to know the grace that you've given us in Jesus, and to know our duty before you our duty to grow in holiness and sanctification. We confess at the beginning of this study that we need your help in understanding what that means and believing it and then going out and doing it. So help us to be faithful hearers and faithful doers of your word even during this hour. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Cheap grace is on the rise, and this is not a new problem. In the middle of the previous century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer recognized the widespread distribution of cheap grace in the church. In Bonhoeffer's work, Costly Grace, he contrasts, he contrasts cheap grace with real grace, which he calls costly grace grace. He said that cheap grace is, quote, the grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution that means the declaration of forgiveness, without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. End quote. In biblical terms, cheap grace is salvation without sanctification. 
forgiveness without following Christ, adoption without obedience. Cheap grace offers the promised inheritance without requiring personal holiness. It says you can have Jesus as your Savior without becoming his slave. It says you can be declared righteous without living righteously. It says you can have two lords, two masters, sin and God, sin and righteousness. It assures you that you can still still go to heaven even if, for all intents and purposes, sin is still your master. We come to the end of Romans 6, which from one perspective at least, has been a whole chapter aimed at dismantling cheap grace. Do we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. That's how Paul opens the chapter. And then later, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. No way. The title of today's sermon is The Necessity of sanctification. Sanctification is the is in this text is personal holiness. That's what it refers to. Righteous living, obedience. We could have called the sermon the necessity of obedience, the necessity of good works, the necessity of faithfulness to God. Sanctification is what happens to a Christian after the Spirit saves him. Sanctification is the believer's ongoing growth in godliness. His ongoing growth in the grace that saved him or her in the first place. Now you may be thinking at this point, especially maybe if you're, if you're new, if it's first or second time here. But wait. What do you mean that sanctification is necessary? I thought I was coming to a church this morning that believed in justification by grace alone, through faith, apart from works. I thought the, I thought the preachers in this congregation were supposed to proclaim the free gospel of grace. We are, and we do. But while the grace of the gospel is free, it's not cheap. In verses 16 to 18, which we studied last week, which is really part one, the first half of this section, Paul introduced the analogy of slavery to make his point about the necessity of obedience. Obedience is the universal hallmark of slavery, right? That's what it means to be a slave, to be obedient to a master. Which is why Paul said in verse 16, don't you know that you are slaves of the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience? Don't you know that you are slaves of the one you obey? And so he's at the beginning here saying, you're a slave and here's how you know who your master is. Who do you obey? Paul established in last week's passage that every human is a slave of of one of two slave masters, either of sin leading to death or of righteousness leading to life. Everyone is shackled by sin, 
or shackled by righteousness. By nature, you came into the world as a slave of sin. That's that at, at conception, that's what you were. In Adam, we are slaves of sin. But when the Holy Spirit gave your spirit the new birth, when you were converted to Christ and transformed and transferred into union with Him, with Christ, you instantly became, by God's grace, by His supernatural work, you instantly became obedient from the heart, Paul says. Obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which, into which or to which you were transferred. And, and Paul concluded in verse 18 that Having been set free from sin, you have been enslaved to righteousness. Those two things happened at the same time. Because you always have to have a master. And so when you're freed from one, you're enslaved to the other. And that brings us to our text this morning. At the beginning of verse 19, Paul pauses his argument, his analogy, to explain briefly his use of this slavery analogy, this this imagery of slavery. He says, I speak in human terms. So I'm using an example from, from regular life, from ordinary life, because of the weakness of your flesh. Paul's not apologizing for his slavery analogy or shying away from it. In fact, he, um, he doesn't think it's a poor illustration at all because he continues to use it even in the next sentence and the rest of the paragraph. Paul's just recognizing in verse 19 that his analogy could be taken the wrong way to mean that the Christian experience, our slavery to God, the Christian experience is characterized by fear and, and, and degradation, and confinement, the, the kind of thing that you, the, the things that you think of when you think of secular slaves. Paul, Paul doesn't want his readers to assume that all the characteristics of, of secular slavery are true of being a slave of God. So there's analogy, but not in every single way. So he's qualifying it a little. The only point Paul wants to make with the slavery analogy is that becoming a Christian means giving yourself over to a new master who requires absolute, unquestioned Obedience. That's the point. Now, I want to approach this text a little differently than I do most. You may have noticed in the outline that it, it doesn't move through the passage sequentially in order from one verse or set of verses to the next. Instead of going through the passage sequentially, the, the outline is organized thematically according to the two different slaveries which Paul compares and contrasts in this, in this paragraph. So first, we're going to read the whole passage again from the translation on your handout. And then we'll walk through the outline and consider the, the story of our enslavement, the story of your enslavement, first to sin and then to God in Christ. Verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of impurity 
and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now, command, present your members as slaves of righteousness, resulting in further sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit did you obtain then from those things of which you are now ashamed? The answer is no fruit. For the outcome of those things is death. Verse 22, but now, having been set free from sin and enslaved to God, you obtain your fruit, resulting in further sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. But he believes that every child of God, every slave of righteousness, started off as a slave of sin. Slavery to sin isn't a present reality for the Christian. It's a former reality. It's not true now. It was only true then. Throughout this passage, Paul consistently speaks of our slavery to sin in the past tense. You used to present your body and its members as slaves of impurity and lawlessness. You were slaves of sin. You can't be a slave of sin while you're a slave of righteousness. This is a past thing for you. Don't, don't think for a moment that it's true of you now. That's not who you are anymore. This reminds us of Paul's words, his exhortation in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor, the, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the time of our slavery to sin was then. Then. What was our condition, our maybe status then? What was our condition? Do, do slaves of sin experience any freedom at all? Are, 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 are sin slaves free in any sense? In verse 20, Paul says you are free from what? Righteousness. There's a sense in which bondage to sin involves a certain kind of freedom. It's the, the freedom that many unbelievers will openly say that they want. Freedom from the rules. Freedom from God's law. But, but this, this freedom, it, it's only freedom from the control of the best slave master. Righteousness. It's freedom from living the way that brings the most satisfaction and joy. Not really freedom at all then, is it? In verse 19, Paul describes the former conduct of slaves of sin as we move through the outline. He says, you presented your members as slaves of impurity and lawlessness. 
The word impurity there typically refers to sexual impurity in Paul's writings. And the word lawlessness refers more generally to all manner of sinful behavior. And it's possible that Paul is using both of these words in a more generic way. And we see in verse 19 that the result of presenting your members as slaves of iniquity, of impurity and lawlessness is what? Further lawlessness. Nobody is ever standing still. As I was reviewing the, the book that some of the young men are going to discuss, Thoughts for Young Men is the title of the book, J.C. Ryle makes that point. You're always going in a direction. You're always headed somewhere. You're never stagnant, whether in your sin or in your righteousness. Sin is a downward spiral. And so you're never just standing still, maintaining status quo, quo. So no matter what kind of slave you are, you're always proceeding and advancing, either toward further lawlessness or toward further sanctification. A wise man once said, those who begin by walking in the counsel of the wicked soon find themselves standing in the way of sinners and eventually sitting in the seat of mockers. That's an allusion to Psalm 1, which also teaches that the final and eternal outcome of the path of sinners is death. Not just physical death, but everlasting death. The end of Psalm 1 says, it, it, it's, remember Psalm 1 in the second half starts talking about the judgment, the judgment of God, the last day. And it says at the very end, the Lord knows the way or the path of the righteous, but the path of the wicked will perish, die. And so at the judgment, death, eternal death is waiting on those who are on the path of wickedness. Paul repeats this old truth here in, in verses 21 and 23. The outcome of those things, he says, is death. The wages of sin is death. If you're walking on the path of death, turn from your sin and flee to Christ. Turn to Christ, the righteous one, and walk on the path of the righteous Become obedient to God from the heart. Leave your old master, sin. Leave that old master and submit yourself to Christ, whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light. If you're already a slave of righteousness, then you'll be encouraged and edified to look with me at what Paul says about your slavery to God. And point two. The, the, these five verses at the end of Romans 6 not only summarize the nature of slavery to sin, they also summarize slavery to God with the same kind of categories. So point two on your outline shows how slavery to God differs from slavery to sin. Paul speaks to the time, the condition, the conduct, the result, and the eternal outcome of slavery to God and righteousness. The categories are the same, but the content obviously is, is the opposite. 
the time of your slavery to sin was then, but the time of your slavery to God is now. That's your present identity and situation. There, there can be no overlap of slave masters. You can't have two at the same time. Once you became a slave of righteousness, you were immediately no longer a slave of sin. No one can serve two masters. Either you will serve sin and despise righteousness, or you will serve righteousness and hate sin. There's no gradual transition from the old master to the new. When God gives a person a new heart, when he, when he takes out that, that heart of stone and replaces it with an, an obedient, malleable heart of flesh, the transition is immediate and total. When God transferred you from Adam to Christ, you became free from sin. That's your condition now, free from sin. The beginning of verse 22, where Paul says, but now having been set free from sin and enslaved to God, that repeats what he said up in verse 18 from last week, which described the Christian's spiritual rebirth. And so how do you know if verses 18 and now 22 apply to you? How do you know if you've made that transition, if you've experienced the, the new birth, if you've been born again, if you've been set free, if you've become obedient from the heart, if you've had that heart transplant. To use language from earlier in Romans, if your heart has been circumcised. How do you know? Well, according to this passage, you can know that your spirit has experienced the new birth, to use Jesus' language in John 3, that you've been set free, if God has made you obedient from the heart, and there is evidence. This kind of radical spiritual transformation will be evident in your life, in your conduct, in your desires, in your private activities. Your behavior will demonstrate that you hate impurity and lawlessness, and that you love righteousness and holiness your conduct your desires will show that you love Christ more than your sin the conduct of a slave to sin amounts to presenting their members as slaves of impurity and lawlessness but as a slave of God you've been empowered by the spirit to present your members as slaves of righteousness to be a slave means to, to do your master's revealed will. And, and to do it immediately, absolutely, wholeheartedly, unquestioningly, without reservation. It's the only way to be a loyal slave, right? Elizabeth Elliot wrote an article in the late 1970s called the glory of God's will. The glory of God's will. And in that essay, she recounts a visit to Scotland where she observed a sheepdog, a, a Scottish collie, in all its, its glory. 
Elliot describes how the dog circled the sheep, quote, barking, crouching, racing along, herding the stray sheep here, nipping at a stubborn one there, his eyes always glued to the sheep, his ears listening to the tiny metal whistle from his master. Elliot continues, I saw two creatures who were in the fullest sense in their glory. A man who had given his life to sheep, who loved them and loved his dog, and a dog whose trust in man was absolute, whose obedience was instant and unconditional, and whose very meat and drink was to do the will of his master." End quote. Eliot is correct to describe this kind of unwavering loyalty and obedience, even when he didn't understand the big picture, as a glorious thing. It is a glorious thing to do or to observe that the, 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 the dog was doing what it was made, what God made it to do, what it was bred to do, what it was trained to do. And there was a glory there that the dog could not have exhibited by being free from the shepherd's commands, free from the shepherd's lordship over him. He could not have been freer or more joyful by getting out from underneath his master. The dog could not have known a more satisfying sense of freedom. He could not have displayed a greater glory. He could not have experienced a deeper joy and peace and sense of security and, and mission than the freedom, glory, joy, and peace of doing the will of his master. As a human being made in the image of God, your obedience to God is even more glorious. Being an obedient slave of righteousness is the most glorious, the most God-glorifying thing that you can do with your life. You can't know a more satisfying freedom. You can't display a greater glory. You can't experience in your heart a deeper joy and peace than the freedom, glory, joy, and peace of doing the will of your master. The world, the flesh, and the devil can't offer you anything more soul-satisfying than immediate, absolute, wholehearted, unquestioning, unreserved, unwavering loyalty to God. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, said that slavery to God is better than any freedom. We could put it another way, freedom from bondage to sin is better than any other kind of freedom. Sin is the worst slave master. Slavery to sin is the worst kind of enslavement. There's no greater misery. Slavery to sin is the worst kind of bondage, but slavery to God is the best kind of freedom. Slavery to sin is the worst kind of bondage, but slavery to God is the best kind of freedom. The result of your handing over your members to righteousness 
is further sanctification. There's a parallel in the text between further lawlessness and further sanctification. Paul uses similar language in both. That's why I tried to use similar language in the translation here to show the parallels between these two. Either you're growing in lawlessness or growing in sanctification. And the result of being a slave of righteousness is further sanctification. The word sanctification in verses 19 and 22 refers to the process. The process of becoming more and more holy. Holier and holier. More and more like Jesus. Further sanctification is not only the result of presenting your members as slaves of righteousness. It's also the reward. It's the result which is also a reward. Further sanctification is a reward because it means further freedom, further glory, further satisfaction in Christ. It means you are furthering God's glory, which is what you were made to do. In John 15, Jesus told his followers that if you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you. Why? Why does He speak to us about obeying His commandments? So that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be full, complete, fulfilled, overflowing, filled up. Did, did you know that Jesus is willing to share his joy, the, the joy he experiences with you? The more you submit yourself to him, the more of his joy you get to experience. One of Paul's goals in this passage is to motivate us to present ourselves as slaves of righteousness. He, he, he's already told us that it's true for those in Christ. And now he's exhorting us again to be what we are. And he makes his case here by arguing somewhat from experience. He says that slavery to sin only produces conduct that you're later ashamed of. Life under the control of sin is utterly unfulfilling and shameful. The fullness of joy, which stems from communion with God, can only be experienced in a life that is under the control of righteousness. And so he's appealing, in a sense, to our need. It's a, it's a, Real need is also a felt need, though we don't always know how to define it or understand it. The need to be fulfilled, to have satisfaction, to have joy. And Jesus and Paul both say, well, here's where you can find it. Here's the only place it exists in union with Christ and in obedience to Christ. How does being a slave of righteousness work itself out? 
on the ground, in your life. It, it, well, it happens in your life when you treat God and his glory as the highest good in every situation, in every encounter, in, at every intersection, in every conversation, in every duty, every task, every decision. For example, if someone has hurt you with their words or their actions or both, you have the choice in that relationship to submit yourself to sin or to yoke yourself with Christ. Either you can give the devil a foothold by allowing bitterness and anger to fester in your heart and to poison you, or you can refuse to let the sun go down on your anger. You can let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put far away from you along with all malice. I'm quoting from Ephesians 4. You can be kind and tender-hearted toward those who offend you, giving others, forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see the two different approaches? Either you can be led by the desires of the flesh into further lawlessness, or you can be led by the desires of the Spirit into further sanctification. Now I'm quoting from Galatians 5. This is scriptural language, scriptural categories. It's not just Romans 6. It's not just Paul. But Paul goes on in Galatians 5 I'm going to read verses 16 to 26. It's a long passage, but it's, it's a commentary. It's an extended application, if you will, of what we're talking about in Romans 6 and what we'll continue to talk about in Romans 7 from different angles. But I say, so he's just talked about being led by this flesh versus being led by the desires of the Spirit. Desires of the flesh, desires of the Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do but if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Galatians 5, 16 to 26. By the way, if you're taking notes, the previous passage was from Ephesians 4, 26 to 32. Paul's slavery analogy has its roots in the Old Testament in, the, in Israel's bondage in Egypt, which you can read about in the opening chapters 
of the book of Exodus. Israel's redemption from Egyptian bondage is a picture of our redemption from sin. Our redemption in Christ is a greater redemption. Egypt was Israel's cruel slave master. And Moses, who was, is a type of Christ, led God's people out of that slavery, out of that bondage with mighty, with mighty works going on all around and every step. 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul talks about this, 1 Corinthians 10 says that they were baptized in the Red Sea. God gave them spiritual food and spiritual drink in the wilderness. And Paul's talking this way because he's talking to baptized Christians at Corinth who were baptized and who partook of the Lord's Supper, spiritual food and spiritual drink. And he's saying the people of God in the Old Covenant, they were given similar gifts. They ate and drank of Christ, Paul says, who was with them. Christ followed them it says, in their desert wanderings. And yet, most of them didn't know Christ. Most of them did not know Christ in a saving way. Most of them wanted to return to their old slave master, Egypt, and to their former idols, their former gods, their former ways of life. With most of them, God was not pleased, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 5. They, they did not... They were, they were, God did not have favor on them. He had shown them favor, but they had not experienced the saving grace of God that leads to repentance and persevering faith, faithfulness. And so we could say that their baptism was of was no effect. They did not receive it. They did not take hold of the promises that God had given to them in their baptism. Wasn't, wasn't God's problem, wasn't God's fault. It wasn't because he failed to give the promises or to offer his grace. The spiritual food and spiritual drink were not received with living faith. No problem of the, the food and drink or the one giving it. They had been set free from Egypt. And here's the point. They had been set free from Egypt, but they were still in bondage to sin. They had been given Christ and they had experienced new life sacramentally, but their spirits were dead. They still had hearts of stone and they were still on the path that leads to eternal death. They perished on the path of the wicked. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples 
and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, Paul says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Israel's apostasy, they're falling away. They're failing to grab on to God to, to take hold of Christ reminds us of the warning in Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 14. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If, indeed, we hold our original confidence or confession firm to the end. If you hold your confidence firm to the end. Slavery to righteousness is preferable to slavery to sin. Because slavery to righteousness yields good fruit instead of shame. And it leads to further sanctification instead of further lawlessness, which leads to death. But the greatest reward of slavery to God is the eternal reward, the eternal outcome of being a slave of righteousness is life forever life eternal, everlasting life with God in the dwelling place that Jesus has prepared for you. Pastor Bobby read from John to this morning, John 14, which talks about that eternal dwelling place. It's translated mansions, which is not the best translation. Um, it's, not, it's, it's talking about communion with God, being with God, dwelling with God is the point there. God has prepared, Jesus has prepared for you through the cross, through his death and resurrection, life. And this life is eternal. This life is with God. In your eternal home, you will know God fully. That's what, that's what we should be looking forward to about the world to come. It's not, not the all the, the things that we might think will be fun to do or experience so much as experiencing God in a way that we can't now. You will know God fully even as you are known by Him now fully. You won't have to settle for a dim reflection as we do now. You'll see Christ clearly, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, face to face. All the grief of this life will turn to gladness. Never again will you sin or experience the effects of sin as you do every day now. There will be no death, only life and the fullness of life forevermore. Verse 23 is a well-known verse. 
Some of you, like me, may have memorized it when you were a kid. I memorized it in the, the old King James in Bible drills. The triumphant statement of the central theme in the previous couple verses. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word wages typically refers to the pay that a soldier a soldier receives for his duty. And, and so the, the point here is sin pays wages to its soldiers, its, its slave soldiers, its, its mercenary slave soldiers. And some of those wages are paid in this life, but the final payment, the big payment, is eternal death on the day of judgment and forever after. Eternal separation from God in hell. That's what death connotes here. On the other hand, if you're a believer, your new slave master doesn't pay wages. Your new slave master doesn't, doesn't pay wages. You can't earn what he gives. It's all of grace. And it's given freely to all who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by a living faith. As a Christian, as a believer, presenting yourself, presenting your body, presenting your members, presenting your heart, your mind, your hands, your feet, everything, your eyes and your ears and your tongue, presenting yourself as a slave of righteousness is not optional. It's, it's not one option among many. It's not one possibility for the slave of righteousness. It's necessary. It's required. Being a slave of righteousness doesn't make you right with God. That's not how you get right with God. But only slaves of righteousness are right with God. Do you see the difference? You don't get right with God by saying, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be righteous. But, but if you are right with God, you are a slave of righteousness. Only slaves of righteousness are right with God. If you're a slave of sin, you'll receive your due wages, death forever. And if you're a slave of righteousness, you'll receive the undeserved, completely undeserved gift of everlasting life in the world to come. In perfect communion and fellowship with God, with your Savior. If you've been saved by grace, that same grace it's not a different grace. It's not, it's, not, it's not a grace of a different substance or a different kind. If you've been saved by grace, transitioned into the kingdom of God by grace, transferred to that new teaching by grace, if you've become obedient from the heart by grace, that same grace will lead you to ever-increasing sanctification continued growth in holiness, more and more loyalty 
to Christ. Grace doesn't leave, the grace that saves doesn't leave you stagnant. It doesn't leave you where it found you. Your personal holiness is necessary for eternal life. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's a strong statement. It doesn't say that if you've been saved or had some kind of experience, then you're good without holiness. It doesn't say that. It says, make every effort to be holy, to live a holy life, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The path of ever-increasing holiness is the only path that brings you face-to-face with the Lord at the end of your short sojourn in this world. So Scripture requires you to make every effort to be holy. But we should also recognize that our sanctification is not powered by our effort, but by God's grace. Remember, I said it's the same grace, which is from God. It's not something that you can conjure up. The powerful grace that saved us is also sanctifying us. Sanctification is by grace alone. God demands obedience, just like he, de- <clears throat> just like he demands that initial faith and repentance at the beginning of the Christian life. He also demands obedience. But your obedience, just like your initial conversion, is entirely the product of His grace. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote, From Christ, as from a fountain, sanctification flows into the souls of the saints. Their sanctification comes not so much from their struggling and endeavors and vows and resolutions, commitments not to do it again, you know, not to, not to do it again, all those things. That's not where it comes from as it com- so much as it comes flowing to them from their union with Christ. It comes flowing to us from our union with Christ. I began by quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer on cheap grace. I'll end by quoting Bonhoeffer on costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. Costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. 
and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. But delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. God's becoming flesh. God's becoming man. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, to yoke ourselves with you because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Oh God, help us to follow Jesus, not just with our words, not just with our confession, but with our lives. Bring us into further sanctification by your Spirit. Make us more like Jesus. Make every single one of us more like Jesus and make us as a congregation, as a body of Christ. Those who find our meat and our drink in doing your will. We ask for this, for, the, for your glory, for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Amen.